0: to, like Ben said, start a new series today. We're going to talk about the intersection of um, discipleship and the, the digital space, and just what it, what it means to follow Jesus in this new uh, digital age that's emerging. You, you have to realize, like this, the online space, social media, this is all really new. I mean, it's it's brand new in the perspective of human history, Right? Like there are things that we're finding out that we're learning about ourselves and about how we interact with screens and devices and social media accounts that um, we just can't keep up with, and so it is—it just feels overwhelming for a lot of us. Um, and Pandora's box, so to speak, is open. Like there's really no going back. There's no uh, undoing what's been done. So we, as followers of Jesus, those of us who who do follow Jesus, we have to figure out how to navigate. This digital space. And we have to learn to do it together in conversation, conversation with each other and with the Holy Spirit. And so I think the difficult thing about today is not what to include, but what to not include, because there's so many directions that we could go as we talk about discipleship in a digital age. What I want to talk about today is how we are being shaped. So, how are we being shaped? by digital media, by screens, by apps, by by social media. Um, It's interesting, (laughs) the last time we met, there's just been so much that has happened since we last met here in person. Uh, We have, uh, it's a new year, so welcome to 2023 at Mosaic Church. We have a new name with like feather flags outside. It's like really real in front of us, right? Uh, Another thing that happened is that Andrew Tate got arrested in Romania. You know who Andrew Tate is? Oh, you're gonna. Oh, some of you nod like I shouldn't know who he is, but I do. (laughs) The rest of you are gonna find out who he is because I know who he is, and because I know who he is, you need you have to know who he is. Anyway, so if you so you don't have to Google him right now. Andrew Tate is a former kickboxer who chalked up a 76 uh, win record. Uh, to uh, seventy six to nine records, so not not too bad. So in the last several years, he leveraged that success to become a because anybody can do this a social media influencer. That's what he does now, and that's a thing for every, all of our, our all of our beloved people in the Boomer generation. That's a legitimate career nowadays to be a social media influencer. Uh, and Gen Xers, I know most or, yeah, most of us Gen Xers just kind of like shrug. That, like we don't care, but that's, it's a thing we have to know about. Um, he leveraged his success as a kickboxer to become an influencer, but he's often under fire for homophobic and racist tirades that he makes online. He, he's a self-described misogynist, yeah, that's a thing, who oper- operates a master class style web course aimed at teaching young men how to be alphas. Do you know what an alpha is? An alpha is like unlike a beta, right? An alpha is like the alpha male. A beta is like the weak guy. But paying to learn how to be an alpha is like, to me, the most un-alpha thing you could ever do. <laughs> anyway, I, I t- totally digress. He was banned from Twitter because of these tirades. But thanks to new CEO Elon Musk, he was unbanned recently. And about a week ago, he bragged online about his fleet of gas-guzzling cars so Greta Thunberg. you know who Greta Thunberg is? Uh, she's the young climate activist. So he brags to her about all of his cars, his, his fast, fancy cars that take a lot of gas and, and, you know, spew a lot of fumes into the environment. And she totally, well, don't look it up because it's inappropriate, but she, as a 19-year-old climate activist, totally shut him down, put him in his place. So he made a comeback video, as every alpha male does to a teenage woman. Anyway. But because he made this this tirade online through this video, the Romanian police who had been tracking him arrested him, his brother, in a small ring for human trafficking allegations. Now, I didn't even know this guy existed up until November. What happened in November? Well, my oldest son turned 12, and had a few friends from school, even from church, to do this kind of hotel party, go swim and have fun. And some of his young friends were asking me if I knew who Andrew Tate was. And they were quoting him, saying his catchphrases, and they said their older brothers really enjoyed Andrew Tate. So I looked him up, and after just a cursory glance and an eye roll, I totally forgot he existed until about a week and a half ago. Here's why I say this. The digital space is influencing us and training the next generation. Young men are looking up to people like Andrew Tate. And a lot of us have no idea that it's happening. Now, you might be able to just kind of roll your eyes and go, man, he's a caricature, because he kind of is. But you could take any digital influencer that you can think of, the Jordan Petersons or the Joe Rogans of the world that have access like to just the digital space that your sons and your daughters. And many of us are watching and learning from. We are being discipled in this digital space. For better or for worse, that's what we're going to talk about today. But here's the thing. It's not just about our young men and the boys that are being uh, influenced and trained by the Andrew Tates of the world. Uh, There's a story that came out just about a year ago about the influenceability of young women and and girls in particular. Uh, Neuroscientists noticed a phenomenon that was happening where young girls were developing tics, and they thought it was epilepsy or Tourette's syndrome, but they decided quickly it wasn't because these young girls who had these facial tics and these kind of sporadic movements also developed British accents or would use like British words randomly, and they were like, what the heck is going on? Have you heard about this? Please tell me you heard about this. Okay, anyway, look it up, it's true. What they found what they found is that these young girls were spending lots of time on TikTok, and they were literally picking up facial tics from the women influencers that they were watching. These, these British influencers that had these facial tics, subconsciously, these young girls would pick up on the same tics, and their brains would, would develop them and demonstrate them in, in their own bodies. Like, And they weren't doing it to be cool or popular or to fit in. They were actually, it was uncontrollable movement. Um, And actually, what they had to do, doctors had to recommend them to cognitive behavioral therapy. They had to go to therapy to unlearn these tics and behaviors and learn to control themselves. And they also had to not use social media quite as much, like not watch these young women with these facial tics and these British accents. It's crazy, right? But it's not because it's happening. And it's happening in our churches and in our homes Loved ones, friends, neighbors, everywhere. We are being influenced consciously and subconsciously by the digital space. And the question is, how do we, those of us who follow Jesus, navigate this? And even if you don't, even if you're here, you got dragged here, you got promised a donut, it's pretty good, right? I mean, that's not a bad promise, right? But if you're here, you don't know what the heck you're doing here, you're still wondering how do we navigate this brand new frontier? Of the digital space. It's only coming faster at us as we develop things like AR and VR. People are spending more time and, on headsets and, and interacting with the virtual world uh, that, that exists. We are in desperate need of re- to rethink how we interact with screens and digital devices. Are they producing the I- intended outcomes that we've desired? What are their unintended consequences? What are they doing to us that we're aware of? What are they doing to us that we're unaware of? John Mark Comer in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which I, that, it's just, a, put it at the top of your list if you need something to read for this new year about slowing down and having a, an appropriate pace. This is a great book. Here's what he says. What you give your attention to is the person you become. I mean, I think we can just go home. I mean, we'll read scripture, but like that's that's it right there, right? If you buy into that and think that that's true, that's just something we have to sit in and figure out and navigate, right? But he continues. He says, put another way, the mind is the portal to the soul, and what you fill your mind with will shape the trajectory of your character. In the end, your life is no more than the sum of what you gave your attention to. That bodes well for those apprentices of Jesus who give the bulk of their attention to him and to all that is good, beautiful, and true in his world, but not for those who give their attention to the 24-7 news cycle of outrage and anxiety and emotion charged drama or the nonstop feed of celebrity gossip, titillation, and cultural drivel, as if we give it in the first place. Much of it is stolen by a clever algorithm out to monetize our precious attention." So before the end of the year, and that's right. Like you, you know, you use these free apps not because you're the user, but because you're the product. We think we own these phones, but the phones are actually owned by people in Silicon Valley. These phones work for them as they sell us ads and and monetize our attention, so that advertisers can promise us and overpromise us more things. So before the end of the year, yeah, I know. It gets better, like, like welcome to church, 2023. We're like, oh, it's true, crap, what do we do about it? So before the end of the year, I was talking to members of my group about this upcoming sermon uh, series, and we started talking about devices, and it was, it was comical to us to share these stories, but also at the same time, kind of disheartening. Like, we feel like we're laughing at ourselves and how we use devices or how they use us, and there's almost this undertone of like, yeah, but like we really need help. We need to figure something else out. So we were talking about the loss of hope because the increased demand for quick answers and the short loading times of our screens. How many times have you pulled up a web a website on your phone and it took two seconds instead of a half second, and you're like, Fuck, this take too long. Next, it's like it's not worth it, right? Like that's a, that's two second loading time. You're like, I got things to do. I got I got I got. I got Wordle to play or whatever, you know? I got, my time is important. We talked about frustrations. Like, who experiences this in the early days of Alexa? Where if you're, if you're a woman or, or you're married, like, you ask Alexa something repeatedly and she doesn't, she doesn't recognize you. So I was talking to Lacey she said when they first got on Alexa, it didn't respond to her. She would, she would say, hey, Alexa, tell me the weather. Alexa would say, could you please repeat the question? And then she, she would have to go to her husband, Mike, and say, can you ask Alexa what time it is and what the weather is? And it would respond perfectly to Mike. What we, what we realized is that these devices, like I said, are designed in Silicon Valley, mostly by guys. So Alexa was a little bit of a misogynist in the early days. She didn't talk to wives. She only talked to the husbands. And what we realized, what we remembered as we got to talking about this, it was developed by white guys in Silicon Valley. So persons of color or maybe people with English as a second language could not converse very well with Alexa because she did not understand. She only spoke white dude. <laughs> That's crazy, right? And then and then Henry talked about his experience about getting locked out of Facebook and then eventually kicked off. So somebody hacked his account Ran a bunch of like really inappropriate ads. Facebook shut it down, locked them out, and then kicked them off altogether. And so, out of, so he's out, gone off Facebook for better or for worse. He's kind of happy about it, but kind of like, what, what is my world now? And he talked about like just the, the impulse and the habit of like pulling out a device and scrolling. Like he just has that, like, uh, I'm kind of bored or, you know, I need my attention to be elsewhere. So I'm, uh, but I can't scroll on Facebook. What, what am I supposed to do? Like these devices, are forming us, consciously, subconsciously. They're hijacking our habits. They're hijacking our attention. The more we talk about this, the more we realize how we're changed by these things that we use almost every day. Thomas Carr, in his book, The Shallows, what the internet is doing to our brains, he says this, whether I'm online or not, my mind now expects to take in information the way the net distributes it. Now, this it's like a 12-year-old book, so it still references the net, right? So go with it, though. In a swiftly moving stream of particles, uh, let me start over, okay? Whether I'm online or not, my mind now expects to take in information the way the net distributes it in swiftly moving streams of particles. Once I was a scuba diver in the sea of words. Now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. Our focus and our concentration levels are at an all-time low right now. The pandemic only exacerbated this, and according to a 2016 study, in 2000, our attention span was at 12 seconds. In 2015, it was 8.25. It's 20, 2015. It's eight years ago now, 8.25. By the way, a goldfish has a nine-second attention span. So when you hear the, you know, the anecdote, we have a lesser attention span than a goldfish, it's actually scientifically proven to be true. Okay. This is mostly because the average, just the average smart time, smartphone user, touches his or her screen 2,600 times a day. Heavy usage is in the area of 5,400 times a day. Users clock in about two and a half hours on their phones per day. And if you're a millennial, we love you to death, but your usage is up to 5.5 hours per day. To drive home these points, Here's some words by an up-and-coming writer. Quote, as we begin, become increasingly reliant on digital technology in our daily lives, it is important to recognize and address the potential dangers it can pose. The Bible in its wisdom offers guidance on the use of technology and the dangers of allowing it to consume us. One potential danger of digital technology is the way it can distract us from what is truly important in life. In Matthew 6, 21, Jesus says, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be. If our treasure is found in the virtual world, we may find ourselves more concerned with the likes, comments, and followers than with the relationships and responsibilities we have in the real world. Finally, we must be aware of the potential for technology to be used for harm, such as through cyberbullying or the spread of misinformation. In Ephesians 4.29, it says, "'Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, "'but only what is helpful for building up according, others "'according to their needs, "'that be it benefit, may benefit those who listen. "'We must be mindful of the words and actions "'we take online and strive to use technology for good.'" In conclusion, while digital technology can be a valuable tool, it is important to be mindful of its potential dangers. By following the guidance offered in the Bible and prioritizing other relationships, mental health, and the well-being of others, we can use technology in a healthy and responsible manner. Do you want to guess where that's from? So Here's what I did. I went to ChatGPT. And I said, type 200 words on the dangers of digital technology, referencing the Bible and modern culture. And that's what it gave me. If you don't know what ChatGPT is, it's the, it, it's the new uh, uh, learning AI module that came out in November. This is a, a, a learning, I don't even know how to describe it. It's so brand new. It's a website you go to and it's it's artificial intelligence. It, it, it brings all of these different uh, uh, streams of thought together, and it, it, in real time, spits out the information that you ask it to. And AI just wrote that for me in like five seconds. It's like, okay, it's not like great, it's not like you blow your hair back, my world is blown, anything like that, but it's like artificial intelligence, or however you quantify that on a website, wrote that quote for me about the dangers of digital technology in the Bible. This is a brave new world we're living in right now. This has Google freaked out because of how they've monetized search for ads. Their ad structure could be upended by AI because people can go, you can go, hey, give me a, give me a week of recipes for keto eating and make me a shopping list uh, where I would find these things in, in my local grocery store. And it would spit that out in about 10 seconds. Some of you are getting ideas for the upcoming week, are you? Yeah, this is, this is crazy. Like I put that in. I went, that was, I mean, this is like 100, 125 words. I had to cut out a lot of stuff because it gave me so much information in five, literally five seconds. This has teachers and professors worried what will this do? Like, sure, it's, 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 it's fine to do for a recipe or like what's the meaning of life and kind of laugh at the, at the result. But hey, chat GPT, give me a 200-word review of Pride and Prejudice. Like, what's that gonna do to learning and, and, and the classroom experience, et cetera, et cetera? Um, not to mention just anything else that you could think of, right? Um, <laughs> this is kind of funny. The next thing... Uh, if you're, if you're not nervous or curious, th- this might interest you. I wrote, give me th- 30 words about eating donuts on a Sunday. Here's what chat GPT. Eating donuts on a Sunday can be a delicious and indulgent way to start the week. It can also be a fun activity to enjoy with friends or family. So there you go. <laughs> however, however, there's always a however. It's important to remember to consume sugary treats in moderation as a part of a well-balanced diet. Dang, chat GPT, just let me limit my life today already. Come on, right? Like, this is, this is nuts. So when we hear about these things, we often rush to think, right, because you all did, what will this do for me to make my life better? How can I use ChatGBT to make things more efficient, to cut down on you know, my time that I have to study or think about things, or what can it do for me? When we often miss the question, what do we think this will do to us? It's not as much what will it do for us, it's what will it do to us. It's one thing to ask it, to write a book report for you about Pride and Prejudice, but think about the implications of people going online and asking about advice for life, medical diagnoses, spiritual formation, who was Jesus, what did he preach, what should I believe, can chat GPT, can AI preach the gospel? It doesn't have a soul. It's not spiritually connected to God. Am I out of a job? Like, Should I just write sermons through chat GPT? How would you feel about that? You, you, don't like, you wouldn't like it if I plagiarized another preacher, right? Well, what if I took chat GPT and used it as my own sermon? You know, because I was doing a lot of stuff this week, right? I was just busy. I, was, I needed a good quote, anyway what would this do to us if we used it in the way that it wants to be used the changes uh, so i should say this instead of asking is this good or is this bad cuz that's what we oftentimes that's what we've been formed to ask For ourselves, for families, for kids, is this good or bad? Put it in a binary so I know how to label it, I know how to put it in a box, I can accept it, I could reject it. Instead of asking a binary question of is it good or is it bad, the question we should be asking is who are we becoming? Who are we becoming as we use these screens, these digital devices, these apps? Are we becoming more or less like Jesus? Are we becoming more or less a people of love, of peace, of patience, of kindness as we use these things? That is the question for us in this moment that we live in. The changes that digital technology have brought to our world have changed everything, and it still keeps coming year after year. There are things that I've mentioned here, just here, that some of us probably did not know exist before today. That's how fast, there's a new thing it seems like every week, every month, there's a new app, there's a new game, there's a new show to binge, there's, there's something to put in front of us that takes our focus, our time, our attention, our resources, and... If all we have is, is it good or is it bad, that's inadequate to navigate the cultural moment that we're we're in. We have to keep asking ourselves the question, who am I becoming? Who are we becoming? Is it more or is it less like the the people Jesus designed us to be? For the Christian, it means being attuned to Jesus. Time and again, we come back to Jesus because we find our source and our means for flourishing. He is what it looks like to be a human fully alive to God, to himself and to each other. Jesus is who we were meant to be, except for like being fully God, God's son, that whole thing. But he, was, he, was, he came to the planet in his ministry to show us what it's like to be a fully alive human being designed, created by God, living in God's presence. Colossians 2, two through three says this. Paul is writing to a church. It's his heart for the churches. He says, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So we come back to Jesus. That's why we preach Jesus every week. That's why we open the Bible and and we look at it and we memorize these words and we try and internalize them and apply them because it's Jesus who is in him hidden all the wisdom, all the knowledge, all the treasures of those things. Now, the problem for us is that when we ask, what did Jesus have to say about digital technology? He literally said nothing about it. That's a problem, right? If we want quick fixes and easy answers, he didn't say a lot about a lot of things. He didn't mention cars or airplanes. He doesn't know what happened on the latest season of succession or Yellowstone. In the Bible, anyway. He doesn't say anything about Twitter or Reddit or Andrew Tate. So for us, and, and, and the reason is, Paul says it, in him are hidden we actually have to draw near to Jesus and sit with him and learn from him as a rabbi as a teacher from the things that he's already said and the things that he continues to say through the spirit as we apply what he said so there's a story in John chapter 4 that I want to look at today John chapter 4 verse 4 it's the the if you grew up in church or have some kind of religious like you know affiliation or or awareness It's a story about the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. It says this. Now, he had gone, he, Jesus, had gone through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground. Jacob, one of the patriarchs, had given to his son Joseph. Joseph's well was there, very famous, very well-renowned place. Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. So it's really hot at that point in time. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy some food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you go get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I won't have to get thirsty and I have to keep coming here to draw water. So what Jesus does, very interesting to me, Jesus upends the social and cultural norms of his day. Samaritans and, and Jews don't have anything to do with each other. Samaritans, through their history, were seen kind of as half-breeds, they're half-Jews. And so full-blooded Jews just saw them as rejects, as unwanted, and, and to be ignored and avoided. They would literally walk around Samaria to get to the other side. Uh, but Jesus walks right through and sits down in the middle of, of the town at Jacob's well, a very famous place, and he waits. He could have gotten water himself, but he waits because he's got an appointment with this woman. This woman who comes at noon to draw water for herself. Jesus says to her, would you serve me first? Would you give me water? And what he does is he establishes there are deeper desires. You're here for water, but I want to tell you what's under the surface of that. What you physically thirst for is just a shadow of what you spiritually thirst for. There's something deeper going on in your heart that I actually want to pinpoint and I want to talk about. She's thirsty for water. He's offering living water that will fulfill her and bring her into the flourishing she was designed to live in. Our desires are meant to point us to the greater reality of God. C.S. Lewis says this, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Jesus, what he did, he went around and made people thirsty. He went around and probed the deeper issues of their heart. They thought they just wanted healing. He healed them, sure. He, he offered water, he offered food, he made food, sure. But he, he pointed often to that deeper reality, what's going on inside of them. Desires are not meant to be ignored, but to be heeded as they point us to a greater reality of their fulfillment in God through Jesus himself. Yes, they're often, our desires are meant to be harnessed, Focused and sometimes redirected. Jesus has answers to our deepest longings, the deepest desires of our heart. God is safe to share those with. The thing behind the thing that we often sit on, the dream, the desire, the longing in our heart for fulfillment, God is a safe place to take those things. Who do you think created them? Your longing for significance and importance. Your longing to leave a better future for someone else, your desire to to raise your family according to godly principles, to point them to Jesus, those are all things God put in your heart, uh, along with multitudes of other things. A A lot of times they're just twisted or we look to fulfill them in other ways. That is the point of digital media. We are looking for something. We wouldn't spend so much time and attention giving to a device that someone else owns as is using me for the product. We wouldn't spend so much time looking at those things if there wasn't a deeper desire that was sitting behind all of it. What is it for you? That's the question. And and what is, and, and these things are often the plug standing in the way of us flowing in this living water. You may be saved. You may put Jesus as one of your top priorities, but if there is always something you have to check in first with, that's your God, that's your idol. That's the thing that you're looking to for success, meaning, and importance. Now, he continues. He shifts the conversation to address these underlying desires. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. He's stirring those relational waters, saying something's out of sync and out of order with your, your stated desire, your stated value to, to, to worship God, and the, the, the relational conditioning that you find yourself in. She says... Uh, uh, "'Sir,' the woman said, "'I can see your prophet, our ancestors.'" So she shifts the conversation a little bit, and she actually just really sets herself up. "'Sir,' the woman said, "'I can see your prophet, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but the Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem.'" Woman, that's a term of endearment. Dear, dear lady, dear woman is what he's saying. "'Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem.'" You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So we don't know anything beyond this narrative about the Samaritan woman. There's lots of speculation about her situation that she finds herself in, but it's apparent she's been in the, the series of relationships. Most probable is that she's been divorced or dismissed by other husbands, and she is in a relationship that's not legally marriage, but she is in survival mode, trying to make it according to the culture of her day. And others may have shamed her or pushed her aside to the outskirts of her culture and society, and Jesus walks right to where he knows that she's going to be and has a conversation. Not to shame her her not to put her down but to pinpoint the thing behind the thing the deeper issue of her heart is that she's looking for significance and relationship as we all are as we all try and find our way through this world having ourselves jesus pinpoints it for her and for us to look at and makes this great statement is the father is looking for worship Now, here's the deal god is not a sycophant he doesn't need your adulation. It doesn't make him feel more or less important the more or less that you give him. But worship is more than the five songs that we do on a Sunday. I'm, I'm grateful for that. We have an awesome worship team. You guys, you all are amazing. I could never do that. I'm, I'm always in awe of, of like Ben's, you know, he showed up to like beer and carols and just like flowed singing carols. And I'm like, I have no idea how, to, I can barely sing these songs. I have no idea what, how you do that. Anyway, worship is more than music and singing. It's it's at least that. But worship, if we're a Christian, really is our lifeblood. Worship is the connection, the mystical connection between us and, and God, God and his people, where God receives honor and he receives glory. He receives worth from his people, and we receive back to him greater depth of relationship. You might call it intimacy. You can call it greater relationship if you're uncomfortable. Some guys sometimes get uncomfortable with greater intimacy with God. I don't know what that means. Stronger connection and relationship is what that means. We receive that in worship when we set aside our time and our attention to focus on God, to walk with God through the ups and the downs of life. There's a deeper meaning of friendship where he gives to us more of himself. He shares more peace, more insight, He opens up the Bible to us. He speaks to us. He guides and he directs us. That, plus so many other more things, happens as we worship God, as we walk with him, even in the day-to-day moments of life. When we're in a right relationship with God through Jesus, there's an interplay between God's spirit and his people. God will give more of himself. He will reveal. Remember, in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There's a hiddenness where, where there's a back and forth relationship. And as we, as this interplay unfolds, as we draw near to God and worship, he shares more. He gives more of himself to people who are hungry for his presence. But often, we rob ourselves of the ability to swim in these living waters as our time and our attention is driven away by inferior things, right? If, if we, I mean, I'm part of the problem. So I, I stand here not as someone who's cracked the code and I have three easy steps. I don't think three easy steps exist for this. I, I think there's a, there's a rhythm of life that God is wanting to invite us into where we give more time and more attention to him And he unveils himself. And yet we have these devices that call to us. They're they're easy hits of dopamine. You know, you know, the the person who developed the like button on Facebook has basically sworn off all social media. After they did that, they basically said, What have we wrought on this world? Almost kind of like an Oppenheimer-esque, like, I have become death, right? Like, what have we done? Because the likes and the follows and all the interactions release little hits of dopamine. When you have a red bobble little circle on your screen, like someone interacted with something I did or said, right? They're, they're pulling your time and particularly your attention into their digital ecosystem to keep you there and to monetize you. What does that take you away from? It takes you away from your work. Meaningful contribution to this world it takes you away from meaningful relationships, your family. And primarily because, because intimacy with God takes effort on our part. It takes us away from worship. It steals worship from us all the time. Time we could be focusing and give. Now, I'm not, here's the thing. You, you know what a Luddite is? It's like a, it's like a stream of, I don't know who this Ludd guy was, but they've sworn off all like digital improvements and technology. I realize the conundrum we're in even as a church. I stand here with an iPad preaching reading the bible to you as we look on screens with words on them like i get it it's not an extreme one way or another and i'm i don't worry i'm not checking twitter i'm like locked into this app it's it's all good I'm not checking what you're saying about me on facebook i'm i'm right here i'm present okay The thing is, we're not trying to go in either extreme, just go all in on whatever new shiny thing there is or swear it all off at the same time. What we're trying to do is follow Jesus right in the midst of it and navigate it. And yes, some things it's easier to say, that's good, that's bad. I'll go there, I won't go there. But many more times we're having to ask ourselves, who am I becoming when I give my time and attention to this, Okay. There are no easy steps here. There's continuing conversation. We, I, I, if you grew up kind of in the evangelical stream of church, you've been conditioned to look for three points and a poem at the end. Give me three steps to a better marriage. Give me three steps to financial freedom. I'll take five steps to digital freedom. That's fine. I don't have that for you because I don't think that's a thing. I don't think that's actually realistic in this day and in this age. What we have is community and conversation. And what I want to invite us into is discernment together, to know how to navigate this. And as a result, help each other be accountable in our individual and our family lives so that we're becoming people of love, people that look more like Jesus. Every time a new show comes out, a new app, a new social media, whatever, experience, that we can say yes or no or maybe or not for me or not for us together because we're becoming a people of love, okay? So as we, um, as we seek this, I, I, wanna, um, I, w- I don't want to understate the positive contributions that digital technology has made to our world, okay? I don't, I don't want to just be a doomsday prophet and say that it's all bad. I think that's lazy thinking, um, our smart smartphones, good or bad, or Facebook, good or bad, we should be able to acknowledge the benefit of having the Bible app on all of our devices. At the at the push of a button, right, or the flick of a screen, I can read the Bible and a lot of tri- different translations and a lot of different um, um, languages all over the world. That's a good thing, right? That's good that people can read the Bible in their own language on their personal device. We, we're in a breeding plan together as a community. If you wanna join that, check out our online community. We have an online community through Facebook where we get to share you know, things like recipes or restaurants we like, but also like, how's your day going? How can we pray for each other? Here's what's going on in church. Facebook isn't either good or bad. Remember in the early days of the pandemic, I remember March, 2020. You know what happened in March, 2020? Facebook became the new Romans road. Churches went online with their gatherings, with their church services. We broke the internet as a church culture. We broke Facebook. That's pretty pretty impressive. And people from their living rooms, when they're in lockdown, could watch church gatherings. Many for the first time could see inside the walls of a church. What goes on? What do they say here? What songs do they sing? This is kind of weird, but okay, it's giving me hope. That's That's a good thing, right? Now, there are consequences. I don't have time to get into all of that. But we could say Facebook isn't necessarily all good or all bad. There are some positive benefits. Who doesn't like advances in, in scientific technology? Who, I, I like not getting the flu. I like the development of the flu vaccine. That's really a good thing, right? There are all kinds of things that we could point to in technology and say, that's a benefit to us. So we don't want to go all bad or all good. There's nuance, and we have to discern together in the midst of all that. Okay? So that's the... That's my first principle. But as we know, too much of a good thing or a good thing twisted in an unhealthy way can be bad for us. And this is where it gets tricky because we can't prescribe for you how much is too much Facebook. We could probably say millennials, maybe five and a half hours a day, a little bit too much. We love you. Eat some more avocado toast in person. Put it down, all right? Is that still a joke? I don't think that's a joke we make anymore. Anyway. This is where you have to press, instead of asking all good or all bad, into the questions of who am I becoming? When I look at the screen, pick up the device, use the app, what kind of person is it shaping me to be? So I want to posit today um, a kind of digital asceticism, or if you, you will, a digital minimalism, if you like. It's a foreign concept in our age, a going without it and asking, do I really need this wouldn't life be better if I just borrowed it or went without it altogether? That kind of digital asceticism is foreign in our culture that says just buy, use, and consume anything and everything you want. Cal Newport, who is a, he's a research professor at MIT, wrote in his book called Digital Minimalism. He says almost everyone, he did a big research project for this book, almost everyone I spoke to believe in the power of the internet and recognize that it can and should be a force that improves their lives. They didn't necessarily want to give up Google Maps or abandon Instagram. I mean, right? Who wants to give up Google Maps? No thanks. Like, I, I don't know if I'd be here right now. I'd probably still be lost in Manhattan, right? So, like, Sarah, come pick me up. I don't know where I am. Like, thank God for Google Maps. I can really honestly say that. Who wants to abandon Instagram? But they also felt as though their current relationship with technology was unsustainable to the point of, that if something didn't change soon, they'd break too. A common term I heard in these conversations about modern digital life was exhaustion. You feel that? You feel that exhaustion? It's not that any one app or website was particularly bad when considered in isolation. As many people clarified, the issue was the overall impact of having so many different shiny bubbles pulling so insistently at their attention and manipulating their mood. Their problem with this frenzied activity is less about its details than the fact that it's increasingly beyond their control. Few want to spend so much time online, but these tools have a way of cultivating behavioral addictions. The urge to check Twitter refresh Reddit becomes a nervous twitch that shatters uninterrupted time and a shard's too small to support the presence necessary for an intentional life. That reminds me of something Jesus said in Matthew 11. He said, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Instead of religion, put in there your app of choice, your digital device, Android versus iPhone. Are you burned out? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn, and here it is the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. We get caught in this ever worrying spiral of exhaustion and the need for rest, a real chance to catch our breath and recharge. But what we often reach for Is what's easiest. It's what's most what we think a low-hanging fruit. When I'm tired, you know, the first thing I reach for is my phone. When I'm bored, I reach for my phone. When I'm sleepy, when I'm when I'm in between meetings, when I'm standing in line at the grocery store aisle, you know what I'm doing? I'm on my phone. What's easiest is a device or a screen. We binge watch, we scroll, and sometimes we scroll while we binge watch. Raise your hand if you do, don't raise your hand if you do that. But this, when, when we do this, it leaves us more exhausted, more tired, and more without rest. Oftentimes, it, it, we're more outraged, we're more inflamed, we're more jealous of like what our friends from high school are doing and where they're traveling and what they bought. It's not more restful to pick up our phone and scroll, though in the moment, it's easy to believe, well, I just need a moment where my brain can turn off. It doesn't happen that way. This leaves us more tired, less relaxed, more on edge, and dumped right back into the rat race of barely surviving our work week, not to mention what it does to our families when we give them continuous partial attention. And that's only to repeat the cycle of work, scroll, work, scroll, and so on. So in pursuit of digital asceticism, and instead of giving us three steps to happiness, I want us to like just sit. You know there's no guilt or condemnation here, right? Like some of us may feel a little more gut punched. And that's, I think, probably the spirit speaking to us. It's, it's not me. If you're hearing guilt or condemnation, guys, I'm right here with you. I don't do it as a digital guru from the mountaintop shouting down, here's how to do it. I'm like, this is a problem for me and my family too, okay? So we have to figure this out together. But what I want to do, if you'll allow me to, is I want to just sit in the discomfort for a few more moments. I just want to ask questions. Instead of giving you prescriptions, I just want to sit and ask a few of these things, okay? Ready? When do I first pick up a device in my day? When do I last put down a device for the day? How long can I go in a day without looking at a screen? How many consecutive hours in a week do I go without a screen? And here's the question. How is this shaping me? See, I don't have have an answer for you. We can have a conversation, but I can't tell you how it's shaping you for you. I can tell you what it's doing to me and my family. And even some of the things we've done to push back. But this is is the question we have to sit in. What what are my habits? If my habits form me and determine my destiny, who am I becoming? Okay. Next slide. How many devices grab my attention for work? Can I actually like leave work or is their email always coming at me? On my days off, how much time is spent on a screen or a device? How many tabs, this is a fun one to do in in a group setting. How many tabs or windows do I have open on my device, in my browser window? From what sources do I receive news about the world? From what sources do I receive information, advice for life? And how is this shaping me? How many social media accounts do I have and how much time per day do I spend interacting with them? On what devices or screens do I read scripture? On what devices or screens do I participate in worship? And how is this? (laughs) I better be Jesus. (laughs) And how is this shaping me? What access do my? I'm almost done. Hang on. Um, what access do my children have to screens and devices? Man, that's such an important question. I mean, my son John came home from middle school with, with an iPad that I have no control over. I used to be able to kind of set it up. A certain, I have no, and it took me a couple of weeks before I realized: Are you watching YouTube at home on my Wi-Fi? Unsupervised? Like, oh no, I, this can't happen, right? Like what, they're, It's happening under our noses. What access do they have? And what information do I review about my children's online activity? And how is this shaping them? Final question, what activities do I enjoy with friends and loved ones which don't involve a screen or a device? How is this shaping us? Okay, with that, my hope is not that we experience condemnation, but instead it's to get us thinking about how these things are forming us. Who are we becoming, and whether it's getting us closer or further than becoming like Jesus? So, one final story. I'm gonna have the worship team come up. I'm, I'm going a few minutes over time, so just hang with me. One of the things that we could think is, ah, uh, every generation has had a technological like thing to have to figure out. We'll be fine. That, that may be true, but I think that's giving in to the culture rather than thoughtfully engaging it. Now, again, we don't wanna go to that extreme and just say, whatever's fine, we'll figure it out. But we don't wanna go to the other extreme and think, well, we'll just have to swear it off. We'll just live in a bubble all cloister way to ourselves. Our call is to navigate this, just like the early church did. The interesting thing to me is that the early church actually harnessed the technology of their times for the, the advancement of the gospel, I've referenced already the Roman's road. That was a technological marvel in, in, the early, uh, in the ancient Near East. What Rome did to pave all the roads, all the roads lead to and from Rome, the church was able to actually write and send letters along that road that meant speed, efficiency, and safety. And so they wrote letters. They weren't face-to-face in all their communication. We have the New Testament because letters were written and sent and given to early churches across the Roman Empire, now, here's the interesting thing. Yes, they harnessed the technology of the day, but as Andy Crouch notes, there was always a human element involved. There was always a letter carrier. Paul wrote the, rotor, wrote the Romans letter and then sent Phoebe with it to carry it to the Roman church, to read it to them, to, because Phoebe was personally known by Paul, so she could read it, describe Paul, what he was feeling, thinking, and then take questions back from the Roman church. So we too, what if, instead of going all in or swearing everything off, learn to navigate it together and always push together for that human element of what is this shaping me to become, just like the early church did, to humanize it, to embody it, and to, to, to remember that there's an imprint, there's the imago Day, the image of God with people that we're interacting with, whether it be online and of course in person. That's my hope for us in this this thrust towards digital asceticism is that we humanize and maintain the relational component that the church has always insisted on. And it should be no different in this digital age, okay? Why don't you stand with me? I wanna give you a question to leave you with. I know you have a lot of questions to think about, but this one question, as you go from this place this week, what are some sustainable rhythms I can implement in pursuit of digital equilibrium? What are some things that I need to think about and then I need to do to better safeguard my family, to spend quality time together, and to spend my time, energy, and resources pointed all and and mostly towards God instead of mostly inward or to that digital space of of just loneliness and disconnection. That's what I want you to work on this week, okay? So let me pray for you as our worship team uh, leads us out. So Father, thank you for this church. God, we thank you. We do thank you for the, the marvels and technology that we get to benefit from. Thank you for our friends and family that get to watch this digital stream or listen to it later on the podcast. We do thank you that in all the ways that, that tech has advanced the gospel, God. And in the midst of this, God, we ask for discernment. We ask for wisdom to know how to navigate it for ourselves, our families, and our church. God, we want you to be at the forefront of our thought, the, the first thing that we think of during the day, the last thing that we think of before we sleep. God, we want you to be first, to love you with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. So help us do that practically by managing these digital spaces and these digital devices, these screens, God. We need your help. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded by Mosaic Church in Manhattan, Kansas where we're uniting people in the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit mosaicmhk.com.